Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Kia ora everyone, this is Stephen Moe and I'm glad you could join me for another episode of Seeds Podcast. Now that the Seeds Impact Conference is in the past, I can focus again on doing some more interviews with people. And this one is a really fascinating one with Carl Davidson. As you'll see, um, it's the type of interview where we could have gone on for hours and hours because we're kind of riffing off each other, having amazing discussions about topics that I think are really important. And we also got the chance to talk about The Apple Tree, which is a book which is just coming out now. Um, If you've listened to Seeds before or you're interested in the content that I put out, then I think you're really going to enjoy it. It's a children's book, but probably more for the adult who's reading it than it is for the child who's listening. So check that out. Um, I've put a link in the show notes to how you can get more. Also, for those of you who might be interested, you can also check out season two of Board Matters. This is a conversational podcast where I speak to directors around Aotearoa from different sectors to find out what matters most to them and what it means to be effective on boards. Board Matters is made by the Institute of Directors, and there's going to be seven new episodes dropping every Tuesday from the 31st of October. So if you subscribe to that, you're going to get a notification. Have a look for it. The name again is Board Matters, and I'm really proud of what it's become. Now let's get into this fascinating conversation with Carl Davidson. Well, it's a real pleasure to welcome Carl Davidson, who's a social scientist, to the podcast. Hello. I'm really glad you could join me. Um, We've gotten to know each other over the years um, because we both are based in Christchurch. Absolutely. But I've never been able to ask you questions about your background and, you know, what's led you to become a social scientist. And I see intriguing LinkedIn posts on (laughs) a variety of topics. Um, Mm. So could we just start? Let's go way back in time. What was life like for you when you were, say, five years old? Ooh. So, uh, yeah, uh, loving, boring family. Okay. Um, you know, that's <laughs> unfortunately. Um, uh, um, parents, mum's a teacher, dad was a manager, grew up in a household, uh, always about both business and about social policy, thinking about the, 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 the greater world. My mum was heavily involved in her church. We, we grew up in, in her church as well, which was an Anglican church, going to Sunday school, playing sport, all of that stuff. Yeah. And where was this? That so we moved to New Zealand from the UK when I was seven. So from seven till about thirteen, we were in Christchurch. Mm-hmm. Um, grew up on the outskirts of Christchurch. It was it was semi-rural in those days, so you can imagine. We can come back and talk about this. But one of the <coughs> one of the things social scientists are getting really worried about is the lack of unstructured play that kids have in their lives. Mm. But of course, you know, probably like you, I grew up in a free range household out playing in the field you know roaming around making up the games with the neighborhood kids yeah well especially in new zealand i think it's a common story isn't it especially like because i similar story to you moved here when i was seven years old right so my accent doesn't actually betray you know the origins (laughs) but we we moved to a small place called papakayo down in otago and so there was a field next to us with sheep and then there was a graveyard on the other side oh with the local, <laughs> I think it was Presbyterian Church. Right. So that was like my environment of being outdoors. So definitely a contrast yeah. to today with devices. Well, and I'll tell you something interesting. So um, as you know, my wife's American, so we spend every few years we go back to the States. I grew up in bare feet. 
and my default still is to go and bare feet. And there are places in the world where if you if you go about and bare feet, people look like at you as though you're a weirdo. Mm. But for me, bare feet's about no, no, bare feet's the default. Yeah. And also, when you have bare feet, this sounds preposterous, but you know you are much more rooted in the the ground and the soil. There's really good medical science that says. If you're in bare feet, you're using more of your brain, so your your balance will be improved and yeah. and and will sustain be sustained for longer. Yeah. But I really like the feel, and again, there's some really good psychology about stress that says if you can scrub your toes and feel your shoes, feel the ground beneath you, that's really good for centering. That's mm. that's how I grew up. Yeah, that's really interesting. I have a feeling our conversation is going to go like this. <laughs> Lots of different topics, so we'll have to do a part two sometime. Right, but that. Um, you know, just shoes itself, the fact that in Western culture we assume that shoes is what we need. I, I heard a story of kind of like a aid group going to Africa, and they went to the village, and they're like, oh, none of these children have shoes. Mm-hmm. We've got to buy shoes mm-hmm. and bring them and give them shoes. So that was their big effort, you know, fundraise yeah. so the children can have shoes. Actually, if they talked to the local people, they would have found out that what they needed was pencils and yes. paper yes. and yeah. learning materials. Yeah. Yeah. And shoes were not part of their cultural, mm. you know. But this again, the conversation is going to go everywhere. But you know, with the best will in the world, we we seem to have done some things in the West and modern society that are actually we're spending a lot of money undoing. So old people have huge balance problems. Mm. We have huge spinal problems. We're sedentary. We're sitting in chairs now. Yeah. Chairs are a relatively new invention in the history of humankind. Mm. Most people, most of the time, squat, which means that you know their backs and their legs and their hips work in a way that ours don't tend to. Yeah. So as we get older, we have massive problems around those. Now, again, with the best will in the world, we made our lives easier. They've become much more sedentary, and we're facing the consequences yeah. of that. It's interesting. When I moved to Japan, I remember going into the toilet. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you've been to Japan. Yeah, I know the squatting toilet. You know what I'm about to say? <laughs> yes. Yeah, squatting yeah. toilet. Yeah. But it was yeah. quite a, like, mm. oh, this is different because yeah. we're so used to sitting, you know, yeah. on the pristine. So there's, a, there's an invention in the United States called a squatty potty, right? And it's a, it's a little stool that sits in front of a toilet that you put your feet on so it gets your legs higher. Okay. So it helps you mimic what you'd be doing if you were squatting over a toilet. Yeah. So we take the old-fashioned Western toilet, the famous Thomas Crapper toilet, and then we have to adjust it to make it damn thing work. So, again, this, we don't need to go into this conversation, but it does seem like hemorrhoids you know, are a problem that's caused by the fact that we use those Thomas Crapper toilets, mm. and they're not a problem, and societies have to squat. Mm. Interesting, mm. yeah. It's the, I guess that's part of what you do in, in your work, yes. which we're, we're going to get onto. Right. But, <laughs> yeah. you know, looking at the consequences and thinking... Like there's this problem. What's led to that, right? Yeah, like, yeah. And the, what's the problem behind the problem? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. that, I mean, this is a. All social scientists are taught to do this, right? Um, if you have a sociological background, you're often uh, people to often talk about the sociological imagination, but it's mm. often the problem behind the problem, mm. rather than taking the first. Uh, articulation of the problems being the thing we solve, we need to think really hard about. Well, hold on a minute. Yeah. What's causing that? Yeah. You know, yeah. maybe maybe we can fix it upstream rather than you know do all the you know like it's like um, uh, uh, kids are much more likely to need glasses if they spend a lot of their life under artificial light. Right. You know. So yes, there are some genetic components, but actually, kids that spend a lot more time around sunlight are much more, less likely to need glasses. Mm. So rather than making glasses cheap and free, why don't we think about getting kids to spend more time 
and sunlight. Mm, yeah, yeah, that's fascinating. It's I agree. It's the in, in a way, it's that picture of the ambulance and at yes. the bottom of the cliff yes. or the fence yes. at the top of the cliff. Yeah. Like sometimes there's simple things that could be changed that would actually have massive massive impact. I've been having this conversation a lot um, um, post-COVID really right which is we uh, again in the West <coughs> we make heroes out of uh, medical practitioners and for good reason right there mm. are any number of TV shows about heroic surgeons and nurses mm. but there are none about public health mm. there, are, there are very few great stories about the work that public health does which prevents disease because you don't see it right we've mm. prevented it think about you know, the famous Broad Street pump idea. You take the, the handle off the pump, people stop drinking the water, they're no longer getting dysentery. We don't see that. Mm. But if they've got the disease and we can fix them with some heroic intervention, you know, we can we can turn those people into heroes. Yeah, yeah. No, that's good. Yeah, it, it reminds me of my great-grandfather who went to Panama to help build the Panama Canal. Wow. And um, as you know, De La Seps was there beforehand. Yes. The French, yes. they were not successful. No. One of the primary reasons was the mosquitoes, yes. which were carrying these yeah. diseases. Yeah. And so one of the innovations that the Americans had in the 1905-1906 era is to get rid of the stagnant water, yes. get rid of the diseases, yeah. and therefore their people weren't dying all the time. Well, it's almost even worse than that because the when the French were there, they had a... They had the completely wrong idea about uh, how how uh, malaria was was transmitted, and they thought it was from ants. Mm. And so what they did is, for the workers, think about a bed. They would put little uh, dishes on the bed legs right. and fill them with water, thinking that then the ants couldn't walk up the bed legs and bite you. Sure. But we know, of course, that it comes from mosquitoes, mosquitoes and yeah. mosquitoes breed in yeah. stagnant water. Yeah. So with the again, with the best will in the world. Those guys actually created incredibly um, the, the perfect conditions to create the thing they thought they were solving because they yeah. hadn't thought about the real problem. Yeah. Or they had the wrong model in their head. Yeah. And we spend a lot of time in social science working through that. That's, um, you know, This is where the work on impact comes in, thinking about what is the logic model in your head? How do we get from this intervention yeah. to this outcome? Let's work through it really carefully. Yeah, but what a that's a really good example. I'm going to use that in a okay. talk sometime because, <laughs> you know, it, it, we think we're solving something, yes. but we're actually not just multiplying it. We're, we're making it far, far worse, yeah. you know, in, so, yeah. in what we think is the solution. So in the policy world, we talk about unintended consequences, mm. and some of those are good and bad. And then we talk about perverse consequences, mm. which are when the consequences are really really bizarre yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, one of my favorite ones of the a perverse consequence but a positive one is that um in that in that uh no man's land in the is it the 48th parallel in korea mm -hmm. between south korea and north korea mm -hmm. it's become a wildlife reserve like native trees have regenerated faunas come back animals have come back because of course there's no development and there are no humans mm. It's interesting. Well, coming back to your yes. life, <laughs> so okay. do you have memories of England? Like, is that seven I, years old? You're, you're it's, it's a great question. I have these flashbulb memories, mm. but I'm pretty sure they're from looking at photos of okay. my parents' house. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like, you know, I remember the house. I remember, I, no, I mean. So you don't remember, like, they sat down with you and said, right, we're moving to New Zealand. That's not a memory of. No, but, but so you got to remember this. So I'm, I'm, I'm older than you. When they moved, it was the early 70s. And mm. moving from a small town in England mm. to the other side of the world was a big deal. Yep. So the local newspaper did a story on us. Oh. And I still have the beautiful black and white photo of my parents looking young, my brother and I looking like we were like small children. I've got that story. So 
the, the, the subjective narrative I have about moving, of course, is all wrapped up with that, that yeah. story. I mean, the thing about memory, though, any good psychologist will tell you this, memory is reconstructive anyway. Mm. Like, memory doesn't work the way that most people think memory works. Mm. Uh, it's always recalled in the presence through the emotion and the knowledge you have at the moment. Mm. So memory is incredibly plastic. Um, and that probably explains why we talk about the good old days, you yes. know, like... Remember back in the 80s, for example, yeah. it was all much better then. <laughs> but we we kind of forget, like, yes. actually, there was a Cold War on. Yeah. There was, you yeah. know, different pricing inflation. Yes. There was lots of turmoil. Yeah. There was that. But we have yeah. a select, sometimes we have yeah. a selective Well, memory. think about, uh, again, if you remember New Zealand, the shops were closed. You know, like it was a pretty yeah. bleak place. That's called rosy retrospection. That's incredibly common, right? Mm. Um, when you look back, it's easy to remember the highlights and forget the bad parts. So mm. part of the work that uh, my company Research First does in Christchurch is about how are we doing post-recovery from the earthquakes. Yeah. And one of the bizarre findings in that research always is there's a significant minority of people, perhaps a quarter to a third, who say, no, Christchurch was better before the earthquakes. Right. And if you look around, that's clearly preposterous, right? So they don't actually mean that. They probably mean they're dissatisfied with their lives at the moment or the direction of the city. Yeah. But when you ask them to recall Christchurch, they're only ever pulling out those, those, mm. really, those good bits, right? Yeah, but maybe it's because at that time that they're remembering, they were... 20 years old, Absolutely. they were beginning their yes. life, it was all fun and Absolutely. exciting, yep. and now you're asking them, they're 40 years old, yep. and they're in a job that they yes. don't like, yeah, or yeah. whatever. So, so, it's like, so it's again, that's called the reminiscence bump. That's okay. also a, it's a, it's a really good point to make. Your memories that you form pretty much between 16 and 20 mm. have much, much more power, because... Um, you're still forming your identity at that point. point. Yep. So those yep. memories, they're not just autobiographical, they're actually constructing your identity. Yeah. So that's why they're so much more powerful when yeah. you think about those concerts and those dates and those yeah. all those things you went on. Yeah, and those first things that yes. happen, you know, the first yes. time, yes. whether it's an exam or yeah. it's a, you know, first yeah. date or, yes. yeah. yeah. Yeah, for me, I moved to Japan. I had just turned 21, so I was still in that early age and I think it affected me a lot in so. terms of identity and yeah. who I've become um, but at the time it was just I'm moving I'm yeah. going to Japan I what, was there for a year what took you to Japan and to speak English to teach English or? yeah I yeah. ended up teaching English right. I got a job in a ski resort actually so it was when the Nagano Olympics were on right. 1998 and I could go they paid for my flights I could work in a ski resort I could ski every day for three months <laughs> and then what's the downside yeah exactly and then the <laughs> right. snow melted yeah. and so i thought well i had it was a working holiday visa so i yeah. thought well i'll go to osaka yeah and then i taught english for nine months but learned you know more in that one year yeah, than yeah, i did yeah. five years studying at university so this is a really interesting jumping off point right so um uh, i'm a I, I call myself a kind of a generic social scientist my background is sociology mm -hmm. psychology mm -hmm. uh the company i work for research first works in policy research, but also works in marketing. One of the problems we've got in all of those worlds is that so much of what we think we know about people comes from psychological studies done essentially from the 60s to the 80s on a bunch of white, rich American college kids. Yeah. It's called the weird problem, right? W-E-I-R-D, Western Educated Industrialized Rich Democratic. What we're discovering as the world becomes as markets become more international or as New Zealand or any other country becomes more multicultural, so many of the assumptions that we've baked into our marketing and our policy mm. just don't hold. Mm. And so the, you know, the classic one is uh, if you think about 
the, the tension between an individual and a group. If you think about the tension between figure and ground, what do you see? Do you see the environment or do you see the actor? All of the things that we default to are Western assumptions, and they mm. just don't hold yeah. beyond you know a very narrow kind of view of the world. Yeah, I, I see that a lot because what I do is helping people with their legal structures. Right. And so legal structures are built on the foundation of a Western conception yes. of individualism and yes. shareholder primacy, care of Milton Friedman, yeah. that primarily the, sh- the company should make profits for the shareholder. Mm. But actually, there are other conceptions of companies because if we go back a couple hundred years, we didn't have companies in the sense that we think of no, them today. No, no, yeah. And so I'm doing a lot of thinking about this. Like, actually, what would it look like if we could redesign the company structure not to be based on yeah. the concepts of individualism and shareholder primacy? What would it look like? And I think if you look at Tao Maori, you'd say, well, actually, there's a collective view of the role of a company and there's an intergenerational role yeah. of a company. Uh, I mean, two points. I mean, first of all, as I was going to say before, I think we're, we're privileged growing up in New Zealand, mm. being exposed to, to Maori culture. Mm. I, I don't know if this is the way that people explain it anymore, but uh, uh, when I was taught um, sociology and ethnicity, Paul Spurney said to me that, uh, the label Pākehā means, you know, essentially a European that's grown up in a culture surrounded by Māori and is changed by it, mm. right? So even if you're still in that narrow channel of just being Pākehā and you don't really engage with Māori on a day-to-day basis, you're changed because you've grown up in a world that has those views. Mm. So we've got that head start. But you don't even need to do that, right? If you go back and have a look at the Industrial Revolution and then beyond, there were plenty of people, often that came out of a, a background of faith mm. that were looking for different ways to make capitalism work. You know, mm. think of the round trees. Mm. Think of Owen et al. You know, you think about all of those great examples, even the first lever companies. Mm. They were built on a different view of what business should and shouldn't do. Mm. And we've talked about this offline, but this is why I love Roman Krishnarik's work mm. about being a good ancestor, mm. not, not thinking about what happens uh, for you and your kids, but what happens for your great grandkids? Yeah. How do we make sure that we're not colonizing the future? Mm, that's right. Well, that's the type of questions we need to be asking. <laughs> and that's the 100 year perspective, isn't yeah, it? The yeah. 200 year perspective. So, Krishnarik talks about cathedral thinking. Right. You know, like if you think about those cath- those great cathedrals built in yep. the Middle Ages in Europe, they took three or four hundred years. You, yeah. You're working on a cathedral, you're never going to see it finished. Yeah, yeah. But it doesn't matter, right? It's yeah. a it's a thing that will last and serve your community long after you're gone. Yeah. I'll put in the show notes, I'll put a link. I did a short episode, five minutes, on what is your cathedral. Oh, brilliant. And asking that question. And, um, you know, oh. the idea of you ask one person, what are you doing? Yeah. Oh, I'm stacking these bricks yeah. one on top of the other. Yeah. You ask the next person, what are you doing? Oh, I'm building a wall. Yeah. You ask the third person, what are you doing? I'm building a cathedral. They're all doing the same thing, yeah, and but they each had a different viewpoint. Uh, and of those three, who do you think's got the most fulfilling life? Like, unfortunately, the story's not true, right? But it's the same one as the NASA story when JFK talks to the janitor at, at the at the what you know one of those maybe the mm. houston rocket center and sweeping the floor and uh, jfk says what are you doing and the janitor says i'm helping put a man on the moon mm. we can't say it's true <laughs> <laughs> it's not unfortunately but it's a great story it's a good story yeah, yeah i like that so coming back to your life right. <laughs> um did you know that you wanted to study in this type of area like coming through teenage years or yeah what what drew you to social science so both my parents uh encouraged um, my brother and me to be insatiably curious, ask right. questions about everything. Mm. Um, and 
you know, the, 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 so the things I was, I was drawn to was essentially philosophy and then policy. You know, if you think about what are the great questions, mm. that, you know, how do you live a meaningful life and how do we build a fair world? Mm. For me, those are philosophical and social science questions. Mm. And um, I'm old enough that when I went to university, it was free. Mm. In fact, I was paid to go. And uh, I'm also old enough that when I was at university, nobody once asked me, what the hell are you going to do with a degree in sociology, political science, and psychology? Right. <laughs> um, and, and I moved into a, a publicly funded research role in the days when we had the DSIR before the Crown Research Institute, using those tools to think about difficult policy questions. Then I moved into academia, and then I moved across into a commercial world where we started to change the world one business at a time. Um, so I guess I've always been interested in, in those questions, and I love the fact that the answers those approaches give are always tentative. Mm. They're always up for review, so you never become um, I- I- incredibly stubborn about a particular thing, right? The, the science can always change. Mm. So as what we know changes, our response might change. Mm. Yeah, that's really good. And I get the sense that what you do does have that word impact at the heart of it, like you're actually wanting to change perceptions or help people to understand. Can we just talk a little bit? I'm curious about your mother, your father, and the influences that they had on you. Um, You mentioned a faith aspect, for example, or what were some of the influences that were shaping them that may have flowed into what you've done? So this is really interesting. My dad... my, my dad's been dead for seven or eight years. My dad's a remarkable story. He he grew up in an abusive and alcoholic family in the north of England where your options were go down a coal mine and join the army. He used education, the transformative power of education, to escape that, eventually to taking quite a senior management role here in New Zealand, and had made a promise to himself very early on that he would he would break that cycle that you know the violence and the abuse ended with him so he even though he struggled with it a lot you know we as teenagers we pushed them hard he you know he 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 honored that commitment to his life and what i said at his funeral was he absolutely did it right you know like he he was married to my mum for god knows 50 60 years he raised two half decent kids you know he you know he he never put himself first so that's really cool i'm really proud of that role model he was emotionally closed off. He, you know, he, he he was much more demonstrative with my kids than he ever was with us. But that's right. a generational impact. Yeah. My mum is the kind of woman who is at the heart of her community. Right. She's always heavily involved in her church group. She's the one that clicks the waifs and strafes for Thanksgiving dinner or for Christmas. People are always dropping in. She's always the one that's helping them. She's eighty-five, but looks mm. sixty-five, uh, and is a it's just a bundle of energies. Mm. She's a she's a remarkable woman who comes from a line of remarkable women. The thing about my mum that's interesting is she was raised in the post war generation, but was educated. And in the north of England, you know, the, the at that time social attitudes were pretty conservative mm. and you know lots of people saying to my 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 granddad, her father, why are you educating your daughter? She's just going to get married, right? right, right. And her mum was always of the view, if you educate a woman, you educate a family. And it's a, you know, a, a, um, a particularly conservative view. But that meant that my mum was the educated one in our family, always pushing us to read books, always pushing us into literature to think about other things. Mm. And how did that come up in a practical way? Like you mentioned curiosity, that mm-hmm. you've always been curious. So your parents were obviously doing the right thing to stimulate that curiosity. Yeah. Do you have memories or any advice for people who want to encourage that in their own children? Yeah, well, so um, one of the things that they did at their best was uh, we would come to them with questions. 
And they would say, I don't know, even if they did know. Right. Why don't you find out? Now, again, this is pre-internet. So what that meant was my mum would often say, let's find out. Let's go to the library. Mm. So in those days, we could walk to the library. It was just maybe half a kilometre, a kilometre away from our house. We'd walk down to the library. We'd get some books, come yep. home and answer the questions. We grew up with a house with encyclopedias. Mm. What does the encyclopedia say? Yeah. We'd often, and this, this, this annoys me because it still happens to me all the time, somebody would introduce a new word somewhere along the line. Somebody would hear a word and somebody would go, where does that word come from? And mum would go, get the dictionary and let's have a look. Yeah. You know, what's another word we could use? So there was that... She was a trained teacher, so she mm-hmm. had some of those techniques. Mm-hmm. But I, I've, got, I've got two daughters, and at least with my youngest daughter, my second one, I've been trying really hard to do the same thing. You know, mm-hmm. you're a smart kid. You'll work it out. I don't know. Why don't you go and work? You know, tell me what you think the answer is. Right. Come back to me with an idea. I'm much more with my second daughter. Why don't we give it a go and see rather than leaning in and, and trying to solve problems, right. which I did with my first daughter because she was my first daughter, right? Yeah, yeah. Made all the mistakes. Yeah. It's interesting thinking about that approach, though, of encouraging the curiosity and encouraging the find out for yourself. Yes. Because I think that is a big part of it. And unfortunately, sometimes it's too easy to find things as well with Google. Yes. You know, just look it up in five seconds, but a bit of effort there. Yeah, and it's about more than just knowledge, right? Concrete knowledge. It's also about behavior, Mm -hmm. who you want to be and your values. And the idea of letting your kids fail. Mm. So they can learn is really hard if you're a parent. It must have been really hard for my parents, mm. you know, and then, you know, you let them, you know, give them a bit of rope, let them go away, let them come back. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, though, and I'm sure this is what my parents thought, if you instill your kids in the, in the right values, that's what they'll come back to. You know, if they have a strong moral compass, mm-hmm. and, I, and, I, and I mean that in, in a general sense, like a, a good sense of who they are and their worth, then they'll return to that, mm-hmm. no, matter, no matter how often they slip off the reservation. Yeah, yeah, that's great. So in university, um, you're getting towards the end of university. Did you know what you wanted to do next? or yeah? What? Well, that's really funny. I, I always thought I'd be an academic. Right. right. Like, and again, I grew up in a world where universities were a very different place. Mm. And I thought I'd be an academic. I was an academic. I was an academic for just three years. Uh, and the, uni- the world had changed by then. We'd, fees had come in, we'd moved to semesterization. But the reason I got out of being an academic, I still have lots of friends who are academics. It's a rewarding life in many regards. But I say to people, I was an academic, but I got better. <laughs> um, but the thing that drove me crazy was I was very young. I, I started being an academic in my late 20s, and I would see these students come to the university and then go on and do amazing things, just launching into these incredible careers in corporate lives, in policy worlds, in, in aid circles, mm. just going on and doing stuff. And I thought, if I'm not careful, I'm going to be here when I'm 60. Mm. right? You know, I could actually just about see my life at 60 with the leather pads right. on my elbows. It and was playing out. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, I don't want that. Yeah. I've done that. Uh-huh. I know I can have that life. I don't want that life. Um, let's go and try something else. Mm. So the one thing my parents didn't instill in me, which is really interesting, is an entrepreneurial bent. And so um, even at university, and I saw other people starting companies, I always thought, well, I'm not entrepreneurial. They are. And that book, The E-Myth, was transformational for me because that essentially says the E-Myth is this idea that some people are born to be entrepreneurs and some people aren't, whereas we're all capable of it. And then the economy was booming in Auckland in the 90s. I thought, well, if other people can make 
businesses work, I'm sure as hell I can. Yeah, yeah, that's great. So tell us a little bit about what you do today, research first. Like, yeah. I'm, I'm really interested in that. How did you, maybe we'll start with the title. Yeah. What is it, what yeah, are you well, getting at there? Th- well, that, thank you. That, that's, so when we started, we were very much an old-fashioned, narrowly defined research company. But this is in 2006, a long time ago, right? The company's yeah. grown very much. Today, we have constant conversations about the names not right Mm -hmm. because we're no longer just a research company what we do is we use the power of evidence and social science to solve business problems policy problems Mm -hmm. make the world better one business and one uh one research project at a time so research first started out as a collection of social scientists that thought we have an an interesting and valuable perspective that we can bring Mm -hmm. to problems which is complementary to economics and other ways of thinking about the world mm-hmm. but just gets you to look in different places and um you know so we've become a lot of what we do now is about educating people about the value of insights what good insights look like why you need good insights to make good decisions mm-hmm. as the world gets you know more what, what's the what's the VUCA expression volatile uncertain complex and ambiguous mm-hmm. you're going to need better insights you're going to need to be really thinking about what are the weak signals look like and what does that mean for your business. So that's the research first thing. Um, I mean, it's a company of 40-odd people now. Mm. It's got an ops team that are the ones that phone you up, stop you in the street, send you an email to collect data from you. We've got a data team that makes sense of it. You know, we're using all sorts of, you know, large language models to make sense of unstructured data. We've got a great visual storyteller that means that we present the work in a way that activates it. Mm-hmm. Part of the problem, the old-fashioned research model, is the output's often a really long and boring research report. Right. Yeah. Whereas what we've worked out a decade ago is people come to us with a question, the output has to be an answer to the question. Mm. We have to be able to activate the insight so that they can move the needle, right? If, if the research just sits on a shelf, we haven't done our job and we've wasted our time, we've wasted their time. Mm. And, uh, well, I'm glad to hear that because so often I think people get stuck in like, oh, that report was commissioned and yeah. like you say, no one bothered to read it because <laughs> it was full of some numbers yeah. and no one really understood what it was. So the visual side of it, how does how do they go about making it more interesting? Well, it turns out that's a that's a whole thing, right? Mm. So there are, um, and again, so Brad, our visual storyteller, has been studying that for ages. You know, there are, there's a whole art mm. to the way that you, you, you do that. And so, you know, a classic example, we, we presented some data about loneliness last week. Uh, and, you know, the slides had one number on them, mm. images and a number, and then we tell a story. And you think about um, we, 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 we're trying to persuade people, convince people, persuade them, change their attitudes to something, in this case, to raise awareness of just how scary loneliness is becoming. So we need to tell a story that's sticky. Mm. And what I want people to leave that presentation with isn't just the overwhelming sense that loneliness is a big problem they thought, but actually to think about that number. I think it's like one in eight people say they feel lonely in Christchurch all the time. Mm. That's a significant minority of people, right? That's that's people you know, it's people I know. That should motivate all of us to start thinking, what do we do about it? Mm. It's interesting that you talk about slides not being too busy as well, because some, sometimes I go to presentations and it's like, wow, yeah. you fit a whole thesis on yeah, that yeah. one slide. Uh, so, you know, I, I teach at the university and, and that's the feedback I give my students all the time, which yeah. is a... a you know, 
don't put so much slides. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one, right? Yeah. In fact, in a world where everyone's using slides, if you get up without slides, they'll remember you so much more. Yeah. But people use the slides as a thing to lean on, right? Yeah. As much as a crutch. Yeah. So the first point is don't have too much information on the slides. Second one is, for God's sake, don't read them. Mm. I can read them faster than you can. Yeah. Um, John Cleese has a great expression. I've never forgotten this. He said, if you can't put it on a T-shirt, don't put it on a slide. Right. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. But I think the other bit that you're saying there, and this is what I hoped we would get to, is storytelling. Yes. You know, so you can have the slide, you can have the visual, you can have the number. Yeah. But until you say yeah. little Maria is eight years old yeah. and she's lonely, yeah. like, and all of a sudden it, we're imagining this yeah. little girl who's eight and they're lonely. Like, Absolutely. That's what brings it home, isn't it? Yeah. Rather than yeah. percentages of this or that. Well, if you think about um, the world I've always wanted to inhabit is the world between academia and the general public, right? So that world used to be called the world of public intellectuals. Mm. But if you think about the very best kind of mass market books you've read mm. about social policy or business, they always start each chapter with a story, mm. right? A, a concrete example that's emotive. And once we've zoomed in and got you, we can then zoom out and talk about how this is. It's, it's like the classic, the old-fashioned Titanic movie, right? Like 1,500 people died on the Titanic where they tell the story of two people, you know, lovers who get parted and somebody who dies. Mm as a microcosm of a much bigger, more general problem. Yeah, yeah. But it comes back to that storytelling to me. And, you know, you very kindly agreed to be at the Seeds Impact Conference yes. recently, and we had a yeah. great session talking about books yes. and stories, and we were talking about The Apple Tree, which is a story mm. I've written mm. recently. And I think about that book and think of the what I was trying to convey. Mm. You know, if I'd written... A textbook. Yeah, it, would, yeah. it wouldn't have the impact that yeah. simple story, a parable, pictures that back it up, and people tell me that that had. Real yeah, I, d I don't want to embarrass you on your own podcast, but <laughs> but I, I was I, I was one of those people that was incredibly moved by it. I mean, when I read it, you know, there was a there was a tear in my eye, and I gave it to my mum. Mm -hmm. You know, as a way of saying that you know that that she's that person. Um, I, w I want to ask you though. I mean, given that you've grown up in a world of faith. Did that inspire your way of writing? Because like, it sounds almost, almost well, proverbial. I, th I, think, I think definitely the idea of parables, yes. that a story illustrates something much better yep. than you know, yep. the data <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or yeah. something. Like, I think that has had a big yeah. impact on me in terms of how do we convey. And it's what we're saying already. Yep. You're going to remember the story that someone told rather than yes. the detail yep. of but even the language, though, the, the rhythm of the language, you know, what when you study the stuff, what people say is simple language and particularly archaic language mm -hmm. and then uh, having kind of a cadence in the writing mm -hmm. is the stuff that sticks yeah. and makes it easy to remember. And you did a lot of that. And yeah. again, I, I don't know if that's because you're infused with that. Yeah, I, so I've written lots of poetry in the past. Right. So I like writing poems. I like the idea that you can, again, condense everything into yes. a short little thing, yeah. you know, Two roads diverged in a wood. And oh, I, I love it. I took uh, the one. And I love that second eye <laughs> and I, yeah. comma, I took. That's yeah. just. So rhythm and meter, right? That's right. Yeah. yeah. So if you think about a story, and I was concentrating when I wrote that little short story, thinking about the flow of it and yeah. the descriptions and not just focusing in on what's the tree thinking, but the, you know, there's birds are described coming and landing yes. in the branches yes. and the rhythm or the sound of the water and, yeah. you know, like trying to capture 
more than just that. And then the bit that I haven't really shared much is that my grandfather planted apple trees I, wow. in post-war in America, in California. So he, he got disillusioned with big, big city San Francisco, which is where he had, was living, um, and moved the family up to this tiny little place called Sonora in the Sierra Nevada mountains and bought some land. And the land had a little stream that goes through it. Oh and you can go there today, and there are apple trees oh, you that he planted. You know, I have a photo of one of the trees. Can You so can, uh, you wouldn't be able to get a cutting, but could you get some seeds? Yeah, maybe so, uh, probably. And, and again, I love that, how the apple tree and the seeds yeah. and the impact that brings it all. It's like it almost brings it full circle to you. Yeah. You, I take it your grandfather's past. He has, yeah. He would have been really yeah. proud of that, that yeah. book. I think that book is... Is masterful, and I don't say that often. Yeah. Oh well, I'll, yeah. I'll take the compliment. I appreciate yeah. it. <laughs> I just got um, last week. My garage is now full of boxes because <laughs> I, I ordered from Caxton Press, yes. so yeah. really good quality printer and things. Uh, now I have to work out what to do next. Yeah. So, <laughs> well, I know I, I, I know you're in a, a gifting mode with that book, mm. but at some point you should think about getting it to a mass market, yeah. selling it, maybe selling the rights to it. I, I think it's I think it's a story that other people need to hear. Yeah, yeah. Well, I just have to find the right person to talk to to open <laughs> yeah. up those doors. I'm open to it. I've got, you know, I've got other stories and things, so I don't feel like that's my last yeah, but, thing. Yeah, so, but so. it's interesting, isn't it? Like, I mean, again, if somebody didn't know you, I mean, here you are, mm. you know, a well-known legal brain and lawyer, must spend a lot of time writing in that world. Mm. We ought to spend a lot of time learning how to write precisely, carefully, unambiguously, yeah. mm -hmm. and yet here you are drawn to poetry, mm. parables, and, uh, you know, incredibly sticky narratives. Yeah, yeah, and I think a lot of it comes back to my mother and my father, right. my mother in particular, who encouraged me that if you meet someone and don't think they're interesting, you haven't asked the right questions yet. Oh, I like that. And so yes. that's been a, and that's what guides this podcast. Yes. Like I'm yes. interviewing a variety yeah. of people. Mm -hmm. And so then it plays through the work I do. Like uh, right now, as we're talking, there's about 240 active matters that our team is working on. Wow. So it's a lot of people that I'm coming into contact with. And the vast majority of them don't see the results of what they do yes. right away. Yes. So that story was really meant to encourage them yeah. that. What you do matters. So. What you do matters. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. I like it so much. I am. Um, I just want to finish on this. Um, I, I, I said at the beginning, you know, philosophy and social science. You know, how do you live a good life? How do we build a fair world? Mm. I was um, presenting to Generation Give Christchurch Foundation, which is that yep. amazing initiative that Amy Carter has, where she brings in high school students, yeah. talks to them about the transformative power of philanthropy, and we were talking about what are the issues in Greater Christchurch Otahi that they could um, deploy philanthropy with. And as we were talking that through, one of the bright young things got up and asked the question and said, listen, listen to this conversation, I, I guess what I'm confronted with, she said, is fundamentally, do we think people are good or are they bad? Mm. Yeah, and then she threw it to me and she said, what do you think? And I'm like, well, you know, the simple answer is philosophers have been thinking about that, religious people have been thinking about that for 10,000 years. Mm. But what I can say to you categorically is it's much more fun to believe that people are fundamentally good mm. than it is to go through your life being scared that they're fundamentally bad. Mm. Mm. That's a good answer. Yeah. <laughs> well, Carl, I have a feeling that we could talk for hours, yes. and I know that that would be lots of fun, but I also know that we're going to go have lunch after yeah, this. <laughs> so yeah. um, thank you so much for coming You're on. You're so welcome. Um, we'll have to do another chat at some point. Maybe we can have a focused one on <laughs> research and, yeah. and what it all means. But I really appreciate your time and your willingness to support the 
the Impact Conference and the work that you're doing in the city. So, Amihia, thanks to you for what you're doing behind the scenes and preparing those sorts of reports. And um, yeah, it's great to, to have you come on the show. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I do hope you enjoyed that conversation with Carl. For me, there was lots of highlights. As you could tell, there were many, many rabbit holes that we went down. And I hope that you enjoyed hearing about his insights of being a social scientist, as well as the apple tree. If you'd like a copy of that, then just drop me a line. You can do that by email to stephen at theseeds.nz or reach out on LinkedIn or Facebook or have a look at the link in the website to find out more. And for those of you who are in Christchurch, check out the launch on the 9th of November. Until next time, kakiteano! Mm-hmm.